After I found my grandfather's suicide stories, I finally Xeroxed each of them front and back. I finally put the copies in order. I finally put them in a binder. And then I read through them in order again and again with fresh shock. I cataloged the stories and I cross-indexed them according to key terms and motifs. And I put them in a database in which I tracked 27 data points for each suicide story. I wrote about those stories individually, and I wrote about them in various combinations to find what I could find within them. And I filled shelves of notebooks over the years with my reactions to them. And the whole time, I kept thinking about my grandfather and wondering why, why he'd collected those stories of suicide for so long. And my wonder increased when I discovered that it wasn't just the seven years from 1941 to 1948 that he'd spent searching through the daily paper for suicides to meditate upon. His study went back further than that. I found an unsigned draft of a type letter that he sent to Mr. James S. North, superintendent of the New Britain General Hospital, on November 7, 1938. The page has evenly aged the color of ripe wheat, and it says, Dear Mr. North, for many years, I have been interested in the problem of suicide. Since coming to New Britain, I have found that the subject presents many unusually interesting aspects for a statistical study. I have seriously considered making such a study of the suicide problem in New Britain. The plan for the work includes such cases as may have come to New Britain General Hospital, cases that have been successful and records of which are in the Bureau of Vital Statistics, and the minor attempts that appeared in the press. The study is an impersonal one, and takes into consideration only facts such as age, sex, religion, methods of suicide, successes and failures, motives behind the attempts, etc. The study and its results will in no manner or form divulge the identity of the cases considered. Yet the information gathered from such a study will have scientific value, and probably application of preventative measures locally. As the first important step in planning this study, I am anxious to have your permission for the use of the hospital records of admissions for the period of the past 10 years. Hoping you will assist me in this worthwhile study by your favorable decision, I am sincerely yours. I knew this request was well-received when, years after I found the envelope he'd stuffed full of suicide stories, I found a dense roll of large graph paper that was the same diameter and half the length of a baseball bat. It was bound by a brittle rubber band that split and crumbled as soon as I tried to slide it off. The paper was stiff like old banknotes, and its fibers made cracking sounds like leaves when I began to unroll a sheet across the table. 
I don't think these papers have been unrolled in more than 60 years. They'd been tightly rolled up for most of their lives, and that became their natural state. I spread my left thumb and index finger to pin one edge to my desk, and my right fingers cupped around the roll to pull it gently back. The crackling resistance of the roll is delicious. And when my grasp on the shrinking roll slipped, the papers rolled back up so fast that the roll bounced twice when it hit the pad of my left thumb. I spread the roll out again, and I lifted my left hand this time, and the paper immediately rolled up to the right with the same excitement of relief. I spread the sheets out again and pinned the corners down with books. The sheets are 17 inches tall and 22 inches long. The gray background field has browned, and the blue grid lines, which are set just a quarter inch apart, have thinned with age. And what I see first is how most of the horizontal rows of the blue grid have been filled in my grandfather's tiny handwriting with penciled numbers, names, letters, phrases, and marks. Each row of information he'd penciled in runs all the way across the page through unmarked columns of various widths. I slide a book from one corner, and I thumb through the edges of twelve of these sheets, and each of them is filled with fifty to sixty rows of information. A moment of reading makes it clear that each row is a suicide case that occurred in New Britain. They're in chronological order, and I see that they go back to 1923. Each row of facts is a strand of a story, the data of a person in her final despair. And these charts are pure fields of data, rich fields of personal facts and descriptive phrases. My attention jumps around within them, and I latch on to stray strands or clumps of stories. A 40-year-old man from Holyoke, Massachusetts, still mourning the death of his father three months before, cut his throat with a razor in the bathroom of his brother-in-law's home. Within three months in 1923, a 21-year-old machine operator from Persia named Para Joseph, a 42-year-old brickyard laborer from Florida named Thomas Bryant, a 32-year-old truck man from Italy named Foriano Gervasini, and a 71-year-old machinist from Ireland named Michael Hollywood were all struck and killed by trains. An 18-year-old girl shot herself in the chest with a revolver because of, quote, bad publicity. A 26-year-old Italian hung himself from a tree in Fairview Cemetery using picture wire, a belt, and a necktie, reportedly because of his, quote, father's disregard for the moral code. A 41-year-old man, lonely, despondent, and missing his wife and five children in Sweden, hung himself with a necktie. He survived and was taken to the hospital, where he cut his throat with a knife. A 56-year-old gardener, arrested for drunkenness, hung himself with his handkerchief in his holding cell at police headquarters. Three weeks later, a 24-year-old factory worker hung himself in his holding cell with his shirt and shoelaces. Later that summer, in their holding cells, three more men hung themselves with a belt, a handkerchief, and a shirt. In April 1937, a 24-year-old housewife killed herself and her four-month-old baby girl because she hadn't been able to sleep for four months. In that same month, a 22-year-old housewife killed herself, her note said, because she, quote, hoped to find peace. On May 7, 1937, 
Charles A. Swanson fell from his veranda. Three weeks later, Charles A. Norwalk fell from a veranda. Both Charleses with the middle initial of A were married and fell to their deaths. A Serbian hot dog vendor, a Jewish attorney, an Italian grocer, and a Russian dentist found life too difficult, was sick of the whole affair, blamed conditions at home, and refused to give reason. There are six or seven hundred strands of suicide stories on these charts. My attention moves associatively, and I read down columns. In order down one, I read, Mechanic, truck driver, lockmaker, machinist, machinist, laborer, bench worker, carpenter, bench worker, carpenter, housewife, fruit peddler, clerk. In order, I read, Strangulation by hanging, shooting, abdomen and chest, strangulation by hanging, burns, set fire to clothing, strangulation by hanging, shooting, chest, shooting, neck. In order, I read, unemployment and verge of nervous breakdown, had trouble with a boy, had gone with girl four years, she gave him up, unemployment, arrested for drunken driving, unemployment, unemployment, love affair, disagreement with father, Unemployment for two years. Unemployment. Argument with husband. Mental illness. Love affair with married man. Unemployment and wife ill and people say he is too old. To scare parents. Rebuked by father over female complaints. Disagreement with husband. Despondent over husband's suicide. It's all too much. So I pull my focus back from the words and phrases, and I see shapes in the data, patterns in the spaces these suicides make. I pull my focus back to see the fields of information as pure form again, and I wonder how he made them work. These charts are fields of data so pure they lack even column headings. I wonder how he'd written everything in all those tiny rows without them especially in the columns that are blank down most of the page, except for little vertical bursts of check marks. How could he track what would go right there when he had so much other information he was trying to track? Well, the answer became clear when I found a two-and-a-half-inch tall strip of graph paper that had been coated in acetate and rolled up for those same 60-odd years. The acetate is now dried out and flakes off easily, and the edges of the paper are yellow and brown. It cracks when I gently unroll it, and in a row across its whole length, exactly halfway down the strip, he'd typed 44 categories of data that included date, name, address, color, age, sex, four aspects of marital and family state, occupation, and other biographical markers. And then a series of aspects of the suicidal act, including where it was done and how, the locus of impact on the body, the reason given, whether the person was drunk, and what happened afterwards. And between each of these 44 categories, he'd drawn red vertical lines the entire height of the strip. And under the row of categories, he'd drawn a long horizontal line of red, so the whole thing looks like a red spine on its side with blade-like vertebrae, or a long comb made of dried blood or the scythe cutter on the front of a harvester. Once I laid the strip out upon a data chart, I saw how neatly it fit, 
and it was obvious what he'd used it for. He'd slide it down to the next empty row, and between the red teeth of the scythe cutter, he'd precisely write each particular fact of the next suicide case. And later, when he went back to read through his data charts, he'd slide the long red teeth of that header strip down through the field of human data to sort through it and to give it order. There were 12 of these data fields, and I saw that they covered all the years from 1923 through 1943. There were also, at the bottom of the stack, two similar sheets that plotted all the cases from the other sheets according to their dates. He'd plotted them here on these two summary sheets in many calendars that he'd drawn, with each year represented by a 12 by 31 grid of graph squares, so he might see the patterns and variations in their distribution through time. He noted each suicide case on these summary sheets in a code of two numbers separated by a dash, and sometimes he circled the numbers, and sometimes he marked them with a check. This is a code that I've been unable to break. He started making these charts around the start of 1939, and he collected stories of suicide from the local paper through June 1948, which means he was involved in the study for almost 10 years. And I kept wondering why he would study suicide for so long. So I went back to his letter to the head of the hospital, which begins, For many years I have been interested in the problem of suicide. Since coming to New Britain, I have found that the subject presents many unusually interesting aspects for a statistical study. I have seriously considered making such a study of the suicide problem in New Britain. What exactly was the suicide problem in New Britain that made it unusually interesting? I found an article that ran in the New Britain Herald the year before he wrote that letter. The article said, New Britain rate for suicides high, average greater than for New England and nation. More suicides occurred in New Britain last year in proportion to population than in most of the principal cities in the country, according to the results of a survey of 198 cities. New Britain had a rate of 18.3 suicides per 100,000 population, as compared with a general average for the country at large of 15.6. The New England states recorded the lowest sectional rate at 12.4. A definitely higher suicide occurrence is noted for the Pacific and Mountain states, where the rates were 27.5 and 23.4, respectively. In the Pacific and mountain states, we know, they lived roughly in the twilight lands. The Oregon man's a savage and California's Babylon crumbling to the sea. Loggers, traders, and miners, fine. Most of them likely went out there because they didn't care if they lived or died to begin with. No surprise there. But New Britain? The suicide rate right there in New Britain, right in the middle of New England, went from 15.6 per 100,000 people in 1935 when the doctor started his practice to 18.3 in 1936 and further on to 19.1 in 1937. And it climbed up precipitously and incredibly to 25 in 1938 when the doctor wrote that letter. The suicide rates in New Britain were consistently lower than the national average until 1934, when local rates shot up, and by 1938, a person in New Britain 
was 63% more likely to kill himself than the average American. That was the suicide problem in New Britain. In just four years, the local suicide rate had more than tripled, and no one knew why. That would explain his interest, right? It was a local health crisis, and it seemed to go straight to the heart of psychiatry. That would make sense. Except that the very first thing he said in that 1938 letter is that he'd been interested in the problem of suicide for many years. Years before, in other words, there was any special or particular problem in New Britain at all. Or, perhaps he saw the question of why people live or die as thinkers throughout history had seen it, as the foundational question for making meaning in our lives. It's provided the basic structure of all cultures and religions, and as Albert Camus would write a few years later at the very start of the myth of Sisyphus, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest whether or not the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or twelve categories, comes afterwards. These are games. One must answer first. It's not just the first problem of philosophy. It's the first problem of psychiatry, too. Even an American psychiatrist in the 30s, whose practice is mostly focused on getting people stable and helping them make the proper adjustments so they can fulfill their proper functions, even a rationalist with a public health perspective and a temperament ill-suited for the decadent ambiguities of existentialism, even he could see how that question of why someone might choose to take her own life takes precedence over how she's adjusting to her job or to her marriage. Or, perhaps my grandfather's interest in suicide has roots so deep they go back to his childhood in Persia and his family's exodus from their homeland as they fled the genocide of the Assyrians at the hands of the Turks and the Kurds who killed 300,000 of his people all around him. He was just 10 years old when they fled, and he rode with his mother and his little brother in an ox cart for several hundred horrifying miles in a loose caravan of 75,000 Assyrians. All of them were under constant threat of attack by bands of Turks and Kurds who would storm upon the caravan, slashing bodies with their swords they swung like scythes as they rode, and they'd seize young women and girls to enslave and rape. Some of these young women would run from the caravan when they saw those vicious men ride near. They'd run from the road to a cliff edge or a river bank, and if they could get there first, They'd leap off or they'd leap in to die on the rocks below or to drown, to spare themselves a lifetime of unimaginable degradation and pain. Sometimes old people or people turned old by crushing grief would wander off from the road and into the rocks to wait to die. My grandfather was ten years old when he was in the middle of this, and his mother kept them going through every trial. His mother was fierce in her determination to save her family, and her eyes burned with the will to live. 
What made her so different from those who gave up? And what question could be more important than this? Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's just a part of why he was so interested in suicide for so long. Motivations are never clear-cut, not our own and certainly not other people's. But the more I've researched his life and the more I've tried to understand what made him who he was, the more I've come to see one incident in 1934, one event that he immediately tried to put behind him and never spoke of again, one moment in 1934 as the key to the whole thing. In 1932, my grandfather finished his medical internship with honor and distinction at the Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York. He was 28 years old, and his whole professional life lay ahead of him. The world was wide with possibility, and he explored a rich range of options that would have taken him across that wide world. In addition to inquiring into positions at various prestigious psychiatric institutes throughout the Northeast, he spoke with the assistant director of the Medical Sciences Division of the Rockefeller Foundation about gaining a position at the London School of Tropical Medicine, as well as the possibility of becoming a founding faculty member of a medical school the Persian government wanted to set up in Tehran so he might return to Persia in triumph. In the end, however, he accepted a position at Brigham Hall, a renowned sanitarium close to home in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Located on idyllic grounds near where Lake Canandaigua begins to spill toward the Erie Canal, Brigham Hall was just 35 miles southeast of Rochester, where he'd become a doctor, and 25 miles west of Geneva, where he'd graduated from Hobart College. When Brigham Hall was established in 1855, it was just the fourth asylum in New York. According to a biographical sketch of Dr. George Cook that appeared in The Institutional Care for the Insane in the United States and Canada, a four-volume history published in 1916 and 1917 by the American Medico-Psychological Association, Dr. Cook established a private hospital at Canandaigua, New York, under the name of Brigham Hall, in memory of his former mentor at the New York State Lunatic Asylum at Utica, Dr. Amariah Brigham, one of the founding members of the American Psychiatric Association. In 1859, the institution was incorporated by a special act of the legislature as Brigham Hall, a hospital for the insane. During his 21 years of service at Brigham Hall, Dr. George Cook treated more than 1,000 patients, and he made several contributions to medical literature, such as papers on mental hygiene, inebriety, note on European asylums, transitory mania, 
and provision for the chronic insane. As a physician in the management of all the delicate relations which pertain to the insane and to hospitals for the insane, as a citizen of the community in which he lived, and as a Christian, he discharged every obligation to the fullest measure of his capacity and strength, without ostentation, conscientiously, and from conviction. His life was passed in the service of and for the benefit of others. To the circumstances of his sad and sudden end, which occurred at the hands of a patient, June 12, 1876, while in professional attendance upon him, it is not proposed to allude, except to record the fact. In his last communication with his pastor a few days before his death, he referred to the uncertainty of life and his preparation for death, and he expressed his hope and prayer that when the summons came, it might be sudden. Where the American Medico-Psychological Association showed admirable restraint and tact, local newspapers had no such qualms about spilling the sordid details of the death of the founder of Brigham Hall. In a June 13, 1876 article in the Rochester Union headlined, A Lunatic's Knife, they reported that Dr. George Cook had been dangerously stabbed by a lunatic confined in the institution. The deed was done in the forenoon, when the doctor was doing his usual rounds, and he died from loss of blood about 5 p.m. The lunatic who committed this terrible act was a man named Benson, a farmer from Onondaga County. He has been laboring under the hallucination that the doctor wanted to poison him, and conceived the idea of protecting himself with a knife, which he in some way managed to secrete on his person. When Dr. Cook approached him yesterday, Benson quickly sprang upon him and, drawing the knife, stabbed him deeply in the neck and face. The unfortunate victim of this freak of mental derangement was about 55 years of age and leaves a wife and three children, one son and two daughters. His fate was a terrible one indeed, and the blow falls with piercing and lasting severity upon the afflicted family. The son they mention, Robert, was 11 years old at the time, and how the blow fell upon him is purely a matter of conjecture. But in the aftermath of his father's murder on the grounds of Brigham Hall, Robert Cook embarked upon a course of life that largely mirrored his father's, graduating from Columbia University Medical School and then becoming a psychiatrist in private practice and then the assistant physician at Brigham Hall. And in 1908, when Dr. Dwight Burrell, who'd served as the physician in charge for 32 distinguished years, was finally ready to retire, he passed the mantle of leadership of Brigham Hall to Dr. Robert Cook, the founder's son. The younger Dr. Cook immediately took on as his own assistant physician a 24-year-old prodigy named Dr. Henry Burgess. According to a 1985 family history of Brigham Hall by Dr. Robert Cook's grandson, Alan Cook, except for a brief period of private practice again and required World War I service, Dr. Henry Burgess served as Dr. Cook's understudy for 17 years. His reward for this loyalty was his 1929 promotion to physician in charge of Brigham Hall. Dr. Burgess married Bertha Case of Canandaigua on July 5, 1911, and they had three children. They were a most popular Canandaigua family, active in many organizations and clubs. 
They entertained large groups frequently and traveled extensively each year on six-week vacations to such places as Scotland, England, France, Denmark, Iceland, and a major part of Canada and Newfoundland. Henry Burgess was a supporter of the sciences, an active member of several medical societies, a trustee of the Congregational Church, an exalted ruler of Elks, and a legionnaire. Dr. Burgess lived with his family there on the grounds of Brigham Hall, along with 150 others, including the 50 to 60 insane patients they had at any given time, and the nurses, housekeepers, waitresses, cooks, chauffeur, two farmers, and many attendants, as well as the assistant physician, who handled the female patients while Dr. Burgess took care of the men. When Dr. Morad, then just 28 years old, came to work under him, Dr. Burgess was almost 50, about the same age as Dr. Morad's father. A span of 20 years is a proper gap between mentor and protege. It allows the protege to imagine the mentor as a refined version of his father, to project his filial complexes onto the older man, and to mature through this transference relationship. It allows the mentor, on the other hand, to see the protege not so much as a son, but as his younger professional self, and to treat him with a mixture of the care due to the next generation of practitioners of the art and the spite that's to be expected for the younger self who's full of potential simply because he is young. Since the mentor, by this point, knows that he is only what he's already become, that he's respected but only in a small domain, and that he will not change the course of human history. While the protege might yet do so, and, unlikely as that may be, he is still rich with that possibility. Youthful possibility is a wealth that is unearned, and sly proof that the world is unjust. A rather tall man, Dr. Burgess would tower over his five-foot-six protege, but we mustn't assume he used his imposing height to intimidate him. No, for by all accounts, Dr. Burgess was as engaging as he was erudite. He was renowned for his concern, good humor, and the delight he took in the fellowship of friends, colleagues, and humanists in the community, with whom he shared rational and progressive values. And though their ideas might differ to the point of heated debate, those debates were always conducted within the universally assumed constraints of good humor and the fellowship of friends. All available evidence, in fact, indicates that Dr. Burgess was grooming Dr. Morad to be his eventual successor. Items found among Dr. Morad's papers suggest that Dr. Burgess extended his love for the exchange of ideas to his protege, bringing the younger man along, for instance, on visits to Buffalo so they could participate together in regular meetings of the local neuron club, and delving with him one-on-one -on -one into the fascinating particulars of individual cases they had there at Brigham Hall. Well, I know for sure of at least one case they reviewed together. I found it in my grandfather's papers, and it's a peculiar document. It's the only first-person account from a patient at Brigham Hall that he saved, and it exists solely on its own, independent of any case notes that might give it context. It appears to be the transcription of a patient's testimony that was taken 23 years before Dr. Morad joined the staff, and as far as I can tell, it was a document that Dr. Burgess analyzed with his mentor when he was the new assistant physician, and that Dr. Burgess brought back out from his files to analyze much later 
with his new protege. It's a three-page document, typed and double-spaced on Brigham Hall letterhead. It's dated October 21, 1909, and it says, The cause of hydrophobia as given by a paranoia patient at Brigham Hall. The cause of hydrophobia, it was generally supposed, came from plenty of meat, no water, excessive exertion, and runs in the hot sun, this throwing the dog into a rabid condition. This, of course, is true, and hydrophobia can be contracted at other times of the year, in and out of the hot season, even in the wintertime, providing the dog is brought in contact with a burying place, which has been arranged by necromancy, and known by necromancy as the boneyard. The occult take our dead and transpose the remains to their own place of burial. This place is sort of a grotto, and is connected with the far north, letting into this burial place very cold drafts or blasts of cold air. This keeps the remains from decaying too rapidly and from badly smelling. After being taken from our cemetery, the remains are placed, by necromancy, in the regulation boxes and then placed on top of each other and are piled up higher than a man's head, and there are walks between the rows of boxes. Now the ground above this place becomes percolated or perforated, and the force of the air beneath, with what is there, brings something through the surface that, if a dog walks on or runs on or across the place, the dog can become mad or rabid. And when brought in contact with a man or animal, and if the man or animal is bitten, the man or beast can have hydrophobia. Now, one of the places that I have been through, and which is also written about in a book, is Arsenal Hill, directly opposite the Brigham Hall grounds. Mr. Gregory can carry you through the air within a few feet of the ground, and you can see the percolation or perforation very plainly. The worst burying ground generating hydrophobia that I know of is way up in British Columbia, up where the Eskimos are, and the air for a number of feet above the surface is fairly permeated. And, if you are with Mr. Gregory and are let down to within 18 or 20 feet of the surface, from the powerful permeation, a person so placed can develop strong symptoms of hydrophobia. And a dog passing over that surface? A dog becomes so rabid that it dies in its tracks. I have been up there with either Mr. Gregory or Miss McGregor, and it is a dreadful place. There is still hydrophobia from another source. Necromancy can make a mad dog, which a person can place in the ground with help from the occult, and which can rise out of the ground from two to four feet, and which you cannot see from all directions, but it cannot cover a great deal of space. The above dog is usually yellow in color, and whether it's a bitch pup, I, I don't know. Anyway... It has two large teeth from its lower jaw, one on each side, and they are from an inch and a half to two inches long. And when the dog or cur bites, it not only brings on hydrophobia, but also lockjaw. Necromancy also makes a coach dog that comes up through the barn floor. And, if anything, it is considered worse than the yellow cur or bitch hound. I remember once, when I was a boy, on Porter Avenue in Buffalo, of getting mixed up 
with a dog that was rabid. And I guess the dog just came off the space I've written about and came from British Columbia through the air. The idiosyncrasies of one's concourse and Aquarius of Waterman regarding phenomena seismography and rutabaga's evaporation, and the consensus of opinion is that the nucleus of a well-defined galaxy is the proper constellation of one's thoughts on cosmophenomenon, with the phantasmagoria effulgence of the hyperbole bringing nearer to the unsophisticated amanuensis with septuagenarian views and past the pusillanimous, drastic, iconoclastic age, but thinking of Aristotle and other pyrotechnic, peripatetic pedagogues with mediocrity for a safe base, in poussant to the degree of comfort, the jejune in expression should be heterogeneous in thought, and while we can't all think alike, there should be some points on which we agree, and I really wish to leave here. There is no record of what the doctors of Brigham Hall thought of this, but to my amateur eyes, it's the pure expression of someone imprisoned in delusions, hallucinations, and notions of persecution. It exhibits a morbid fixation of imagination and obsessive tendencies, and then a cathartic revelation of source trauma and a reaction formation of nihilistic hyperintellect and scathingly erudite wit that breaks at last, into a plea for mercy. More than that, though, it achieves, at its moment of greatest vulnerability, virtuosic rhythms and textures of word and thought. And in just 700 words, it exhibits a voice that is both satiric and heartbreakingly sincere. Every voice clearly heard is the revelation of a self in knowing nothing else about the man who gave it, this testimony allows us to peer directly into his particular universe of mind. There is a full person behind these words, a fascinating man with no name. His readers, all were given beyond the testimony itself, is the diagnosis that doubles as an epithet. He is simply a paranoia patient. What does it tell us at all to know that he was paranoid? Doesn't it just reduce him to a disorder? There is a whole worldview here that is simultaneously rigid and narrow, intricate, and vertiginously expansive. There's a mix of folk horror, absurd erudition, and a plain-spoken plea for relief. It's crass, it's poetic, and it's unique. There's a sense of play in there, in the ending, like I've never seen elsewhere, just as there's an idiosyncratic pain. And there's a lesson in this. The diagnosis of paranoia that he was given obscures more than it reveals. At any given time, Brigham Hall was home to 50 to 60 adults who'd been certified insane. Many of them were committed there against their will and forced to stay as long as someone paid the bills. And each of them was alive in his own universe of mind.
Among my grandfather's effects, I found a notebook he used during his time at Brigham Hall. It was small enough to slide easily into the inner pocket of his jacket. Many pages have been ripped out, but in it I see that he recorded the name, age, residence hall, date of admittance, hometown, and next of kin for each of the 202 female patients he'd had while he was there. These women ranged in age from 17 to 101. They'd come from as far away as Georgia, Texas, and Puerto Rico, and they were all mixed together in several wards. Further back in the notebook, he listed their surnames again. But this time, next to their name, he put their most recent diagnosis. Dr. Morad's Catalog of Maladies contains 235 entries and begins, Psychosis, psychopathic person. Schizophrenic, mellophrenic. Manic depressive, mixed. Manic depressive, depressed. Manic depressive, circular. Involutional melancholia. Involutional melancholia. Infective exhaustive psychosis. Manic depressive mixed. Psychoneurosis obsession type. Manic depressive and depression and schizoid tendencies. Manic depressive depression. Manic depressive mixed. Involutional melancholia. Dementia precox paranoid. Manic I also found mixed. among my grandfather's Manic effects a brochure for Brigham Hall that was printed soon after he'd arrived. It's titled... Brigham Hall, a hospital for nervous and mental cases. On almost every page of the brochure, there's a photograph that takes more than half the space. These photos are captioned in order, the approach, the bungalow, the men's building, the women's building, the spacious grounds, room with bath, the women's lounge, the men's room, and the administration. The exterior shots show stately two-story buildings finished in fieldstone with steeply pitched multi-gabled roofs all positioned between small groves of towering oaks and poplar trees and immaculate lawns. The interior shots show well-appointed private rooms and common areas segregated by sex with a grand piano in the women's lounge and a billiards table in the men's. When the main text of the brochure begins opposite the photograph of the approach, it bears the reassuring subtitle, A Restful Home. Brigham Hall is an incorporated hospital for patients with mental and nervous diseases. It was founded by Dr. George Cook in 1855 for the reception of a limited number of patients, and within five years, additional buildings were constructed. Brigham Hall has been successively under the management of Dr. George Cook, Dr. John B. Chapin, Dr. Dwight R. Burrell, Dr. Robert G. Cook, and Dr. Henry C. Burgess. The cumulative number of patients received to date in January 1933 was 3,792, of which number 2,050 have been discharged as recovered or improved. Brigham Hall is situated upon a farm of 100 acres, about one mile from the center of the city of Canandaigua. The site is elevated and affords views of the city, the lake, and the surrounding country, and the buildings are in the midst of an extensive grove. The proximity of a small city gives to many of the patients a contact with life, which is advantageous, and the extensive grounds afford the seclusion needed by others. 
The grove and lawn supply space for outdoor life, exercise, and games for all. But there are few of the patients whose physical health permits who do not go for walks or rides. The average number of patients under treatment has been between 50 and 60, about equally divided between the sexes who occupy separate wings of the building. Because of the limited number, each patient is under the personal observation and influence of the physicians and receives such individual attention as is required. The medical treatment is rational and is based upon a study of the physical condition of the patient as well as upon the mental symptoms. The regular nursing staff supplies approximately one nurse for two patients, and for exceptional cases, special nurses can be provided. Nurses are taught to give attention to those details which promote recovery, if that is possible, and secure improvement or prevent deterioration in the more severe forms of mental disorder. Insane persons who are non-residents can be examined and certified at any place where they may be within this state. Such examinations can be made in Canandaigua by examiners in lunacy with slight inconvenience or delay. Involutional melancholia, manic depressive, dementia precox paranoid, involutional melancholia, manic depressive mixed, manic depressive depressed, dementia precox paranoid, manic depressive depressed, dementia precox paranoid, manic depressive depressed, manic depressive circular, manic depressive mixed, manic depressive mixed, paranoid condition toxic features, evolutional melancholia, evolutional melancholia. The photographs in the brochure are lovely and the place looks like an idyllic retreat, but none of those photos show any people, not the physicians or any staff and Certainly none of the 50 or 60 patients living there. Somewhere in the backgrounds of those photos or behind shuttered windows and closed doors were 50 or 60 nervous and mental cases, many confined against their will and persecuted by the rational care. All those universes of mind straining to maintain a sense of reality or a reason for hope. All those universes of mind seething in their torments and clashing against each other. At any moment, it all might break. Psychoneurosis arteriosclerosis. Dementia precox and mental depression. Psychoneurosis anxiety type. Manic depressive manic. Dementia precox. Dementia precox catatonic. Dementia precox. On October 24, 1934, the Niagara Falls Gazette reported on its front page. Narcotic overdose kills doctor, wife on way to recovery. Relatives say they believe couple attempted to carry out suicide pact. Dr. Henry C. Burgess, 50, chief medical officer of Brigham Hall, private institution for the treatment of nervous and mental cases, died at Memorial Hospital early this morning of an overdose of a narcotic. Dr. Burgess and his wife, Bertha M. Burgess, 47, were found by a searching party in their lake cottage after their absence from the sanatorium had caused alarm. Both were unconscious, and relatives of Mrs. Burgess said they believed the couple had attempted to carry out a suicide pact. Dr. Burgess had been in ill health and had tendered his resignation 
to take effect December 1. We find more details of this incident in the family history of Brigham Hall that Dr. Robert Cook's grandson wrote. On Monday, October 22, 1934, Henry C. Burgess most unexpectedly and without any warning advised Dr. Cook that he was resigning his post as physician in charge of Brigham Hall. Whatever conversation passed between the two old friends and compatriots is lost to history. To my knowledge, my grandfather never discussed the subject with any others. Other friends of Dr. and Mrs. Burgess reported that they both were in a state of mental despondency at the time due to a, quote, chain of uncontrollable circumstances. On Tuesday evening, October 23rd, Henry and Bertha Burgess left Brigham Hall at 6.30 p.m., telling the housekeeper they were going to Geneva and expected to return later that night. When they had not returned by 2 a.m. of the 24th, relatives were notified, and a search for the Burgesses began. Eventually they were found, alive but unconscious at the Burgess cottage, from which they were rushed to the hospital. The surmise is that Dr. Burgess and his wife undertook a suicide pact, taking a poisonous narcotic to achieve their ends. Dr. Burgess expired later on Wednesday morning, his poisonous dosage evidently being of greater strength than that taken by Mrs. Burgess. She survived the trauma and continued to live in Canandaigua. All the Elks and all the legionnaires of Canandaigua came as a group to his funeral. There was a color guard, a firing squad, and the sounding of taps. Dr. Morad was one of six pallbearers for his mentor, and on November 2nd, 1934, he testified at the inquest into his death. As the Canandaigua Daily Messenger reported that day, testimony received from Dr. Philip J. Morad, resident physician at Brigham Hall, established the fact that Dr. Henry C. Burgess had been suffering from progressive melancholia and temporary insanity for several weeks prior to his death. Please tell the gentlemen of the jury what his last words to you were, how you would describe his manner when he spoke them, where he said he was going, what he said he would do, if there had been a morbid drift in his thoughts, what calamities befell him, what enraged him and what wounded him, how his manner appeared to you last, any differences you felt had come between you, anything he'd lately said on the subject of weakness or of purpose, or of anything that might concern a friend, where exactly you were at the time, and where you were when you heard the news. Gentlemen, the greatest minds of Western civilization, and especially the proud lineage of thinkers who developed the medical arts, all knew that melancholia was due to an excess of black bile, the humor of the earth. And so the progressive melancholic becomes always more of the grave. He withdraws into himself, as if he were sinking into the grave that's been dug within himself. The grave is fertile, and so the melancholic is often an artist. But once melancholia has progressed past a certain point, the pole of the grave lets no thoughts free. It consumes everything. Please explain to the best of your knowledge what happened and what went wrong, the indignities he felt and what reversals, 
What uncontrollable circumstances that could no longer be seen as tests. What accumulating affliction and what despair broke his belief. Please explain how you came to know him. Describe your relationship with him at the end, what he was to you, and swear to us that what you say is true. Please tell us what you could have done to save him. Gentlemen, after a certain point, he couldn't be reached. He already saw himself too deep in the grave. Progressive melancholia often progresses hyperbolically, so by the time it's diagnosed, extreme interventions must be used to engage the patient in transference and re-engagement with the world. Insulin shock therapy and hydrotherapy are recommended, but the progressive melancholic is rarely a voluntary patient. And of course, the physician in charge of a sanitarium cannot easily be committed. On November 3rd, the day after the inquest began, Dr. Robert Cook, the former physician in charge and current president of the Board of Managers of Brigham Hall, announced that a husband and wife team of prodigiously talented psychiatrists would take over both physician positions in less than a month. The psychiatric integrity of the entire institution had been fundamentally shaken. The physician in charge committed suicide. How devastated had it left the patients? Dr. Morad would have to leave Brigham Hall after an appropriate transition period. Think of Dr. Robert Cook, now near the end of his life, at the same temple of healing where he'd grown up, and where, when he was a boy, his father had been fatally stabbed in the face by someone he was trying to save. And now, the man he treated as his own son and had helped oversee the care of several hundred people who'd come to them in their greatest need, had killed himself. If nothing else, shouldn't a psychiatrist be able to keep someone from killing himself? Dr. Morad had worked closely with the man as his only daily colleague, and he'd missed the signs for too long. And when he finally saw the signs, he wasn't skilled enough to save him. Hadn't he said Burgess had been acting in a state of temporary insanity for several weeks? Was there really nothing else he could have done? Henry Burgess was easily envied. He was tall and had an easy grace. He had material comfort, a healthy family, and professional esteem and success. And even he could be compelled to suicide. Calling it progressive melancholia really didn't explain much. Could just a few weeks of uncontrollable circumstances break any of us so we would choose to die? No, he believed. Not all of us. Dr. Morad would stay through the transition, and then he'd have to leave. On November 30th, 1934, the Canandaigua Daily Messenger reported that Dr. and Mrs. Robert M. Ross would arrive the following day to take over command of Brigham Hall. The paper said, Dr. Philip Morad, assistant physician at the Hall since October 1932, who would be leaving a month later, on New Year's Day, has not completed his plans for the future, he said today.
In the back of the pocket notebook that Dr. Morad used while he was at Brigham Hall, he began defining his new private practice into being. He would return to New Britain, and he would establish himself there. He would bring psychiatry to New Britain. His office would be on the top floor of one of the tallest buildings in town. It would overlook the city, and it would face the morning sun. Patients would come to him up there in the sky, in the office he'd established precisely so that the patient must, as he crossed the threshold, feel his authority, competence, and sympathy so they might achieve the proper rapport. He would divide his office into a waiting room, an examination room, and a consultation room, and he would furnish it all with the 55 distinct items that he listed out meticulously in black ink in the four-page ledger that he made in the back of his pocket notebook. He listed the details and prices of everything he'd need, from his examining table to his five-foot walnut desk and three Bank of England chairs with flaring arms, to secretarial equipment and hemostats and forceps. With those new tools, he would restart his career, and he would serve as a psychiatrist in New Britain for over 60 years. He paid $1,435.50 in all to furnish his new practice, and for the next 30 years, my grandfather, Dr. Philip Morad, was New Britain's only psychiatrist, and his practice was born out of suicide. by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. If you are considering suicide, please stop for a moment and look at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Think about it. At that site, you can find resources and how to contact someone who can help you talk things out. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Or you can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. For more about this project, including notes on this episode, please visit envelopeofsuicides.com and follow at Ben Morad. I'm Stephanie Barr. Thank you. Thank you.